Welcome to the podcast of Mosaic Church, celebrating diversity within community. My instrument was time and prayer. And, um, and so now um, to sing and play prayerfully is just the most natural thing for me to do. So understand that what I have to um, say to you this morning um, is because I am a worship nerd and because I really get excited about this stuff. But this is not meant to be uh, the definitive word on worship. This uh, I'll, I'll hopefully give you um, some ways to look at worship that you might not have thought of. Um, a lens, if you will, that is very familiar to me but might not be so familiar to you. Um, but let's let's start with that song, Rock of Ages. How many people have heard the song Rock of Ages before? It's a I think it's fair um, and not too far to go to call that song one of the treasures of church music. What what a prayer to pray. You can just read it. You don't even have to sing it. You can just read it. And for me, it lands. It's one of the... Because I didn't grow up with a lot of hymns, sometimes I'll do that. I'll just read through a hymnal. And some songs just sort of leap off the page because I go, yeah, I I know that prayer. Um, That was one of them. What you might not know about Rock of Ages... Anybody, by the way, happen to know who wrote Rock of Ages? Guy named... Probably going to mispronounce his name. Guy named Augustus Montague Toplady. Still doesn't ring a bell? You might not know that uh, Rock of Ages started its life with a different name, a much longer name. Rock of Ages was originally called this, a a living and dying prayer for the holiest believer in the world. It's a right of song. It doesn't have the living and dying prayer for the holiest believer in the world. Now, why would you write a song that doesn't have those, that, any of those lyrics in it? Name it that only to end up with Rock of Ages, which is the most obvious title for that. Um, Well, the reason that it was named A Living and Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer in the World was because that hymn was written as part of uh, a public way of of voicing his side of the argument that he was having with John Wesley. So Augustus Toplady was a very vocal, very vociferous opponent of John Wesley. Um, vociferous, that's a word. So they had a uh, they had a very public dispute. They were the they were the Biggie and Tupac of their day. They they publicly insulted each other um, in writing to their friends. It's really interesting. It's kind of a blemish on the face of the church now. That the song would be written to kind of rail against the idea that, um, well, you know, it was kind of a a Calvinism versus Arminianism kind of argument. And Toplady, though he was uh, converted or he came to the Lord, had a heartwarming or the many ways that you can talk about conversion, happened in a Methodist meeting. Not too long after that, he kind of converted to a different stripe of theology and became very vocal. Um, 
And John Wesley fell in right into his crosshairs, and so he wrote for the rest of his life. Uh, Toplady died at around 37, 38. Even on his deathbed, um, he was exchanging threats and, and um, vitriolic invective with John Wesley. Um, they're writers, you know, so they, so they speak eloquently. I'm trying to match their eloquence. I, I read the letters that they wrote to each other, and I can barely understand them. My vocabulary doesn't even <laughs> approach theirs. But I'm telling you this because um, it's interesting to me that two believers, now John and Charles Wesley are credited with about 6,000 hymns that we still, many of which we still sing today. And Toplady was a wonderful author himself. Interesting that two believers could feud so publicly and in such a heated way over worship, effectively, in the gospel. Here's what Toplady, a couple choice words he had for John Wesley. He's a puny tadpole, a blunder merchant, the most rancorous hater of the gospel that ever appeared in England. Strong words. Wesley uh, spread rumors of Toplady recanting on his deathbed while he was on his deathbed, which he got up from to refute the claims that Wesley was making about him. It's crazy. It's quite a story. So um, I'm starting here because I I just kind of want you to think about this now. Believers have had a long, long history, seen some of it, in arguing about what worship is and isn't. Um, Maybe you've seen some of it in in your life. I certainly have. It really just, it's a human problem, not a Christian problem, right? But but Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He, he really spent some time weighing in on their disputes, right? They were, they were uh, some of them were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos because of who baptized them, or I'm of Cephas. Or some of them even said, I'm of Christ, and tried to more purely differentiate themselves. And Paul's words to all of them were, you're being like children, Really interesting. Even those who say, I'm of Christ, he kind of grouped them together. Um, really interesting to me. Anybody here familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs? Fox's Book of Martyrs. I grew up hearing a lot about Fox's Book of Martyrs, so when I was a teenager, I finally got a hold of it and started reading. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs is, was an attempt to document from the first century um, martyrs of the Christian Church. What I found really fascinating about Fox's Book of Martyrs was, when you get to the story of the Church in England, what you find out is that when a Catholic was on the throne in England, Protestants were martyred, and when a Protestant was on the throne in England, Catholics were martyred. Um, which really just meant that um, heresy within the Church and Whoever were the gatekeepers of such a of such a thought, who's a heretic and who isn't, um, were felt strongly enough that they would put what effectively were their fellow believers to death. So it's not just strong words, and this is throughout the history of the church. Um, Jesus' own disciples fought among uh, among themselves, right? In the early church, the Jews and the Gentiles argued in very heated ways over daily practice. For a moment, to just let's keep ourselves in this story. 
Um, most of us have what I think some people way fairly call a personal liturgy. Is that a, is that a fair statement? We all kind of have our way that we feel like um, worship feels about right to us. Um, now, worship is a big word, and we're going to get into that in a minute, but I want you to think about your sort of personal liturgy. What is kind of home base for you when you think about worship? Um, for most of us, that that grows from, you know, several things probably. Maybe what you were taught. Um, maybe your own personal study of Scripture. Certainly your experience. And that is um, probably the most compelling part is that we build strong opinions about what worship is and isn't because we experience God in really specific and beautiful and particular ways. And when that occurs, we, we want to understand it, right? We want to repeat it. Sometimes we want to reverse engineer what God has done in our life and, and position ourselves. And those aren't bad impulses, but that's some of the ways that people end up with what we would call a personal liturgy or, or what you really are convicted about in terms of what worship is and isn't. Anybody, uh, anybody here know what, what the term sympathetic magic is? Ever heard that, sympathetic magic? It, it refers to certain kinds of pagan forms of worship where, where you try and appease the object of your worship or you try and do the right thing so that things will go right. Even as Christians, sometimes we can become guilty of, of no more than trying to cast incantations, you know, doing things just so, so that God will, you know, do what we want him to do. It's a kind of a weird, fine line. Just some things to think about. Well, in the Bible, we have a great moment in John chapter 4, and that's where we're going today, where Jesus himself weighs in on this subject of worship, and he, and he speaks about it in the context of a conversation. Just for a moment, let me give you a quick primer on the word, English word, worship that we find in scripture. So if you read in the Old Testament and you come across the English word worship, any Hebrew scholars among us, anybody know what that word is translated from, the Hebrew word for worship? There's not just one. There's there's a small group of them, but in the Old Testament if you come across that English word worship, uh, there's there's one Hebrew word that word is and show you what it means. So when you read in the Old Testament you come across the English word worship, a lot of times it's translated from the Hebrew word shaka. I happen to be Jewish, but don't speak Hebrew. I don't write it. I have a concordance. I have a bunch of concordances, and I, that's how I learn my Hebrew. Uh, but shaka, like a lot of Hebrew words, um, describes a physical thing, and I can show you what it, what it describes. So shaka means something very specific. It means to bow or prostrate oneself. Do you know what that means? It means not only to get down like this, but maybe like this with your face to the ground or stretched out completely. Shaka. When you read about worship in the Old Testament, built into the idea of worship is that picture of being physically face down to the ground. Do you know why? It's really beautiful and important. 
So central to the Old Testament notion of worship was the fact that we put our face to the ground to remind ourselves that we were made from dust. To remind ourselves that we're not God. And if you think about uh, relationally, when you greet a person who you know well, the sign of, of your affection might be that you shake hands or that you embrace, right? We, we kind of know what it looks like when, when friends come together. Well, if you think about relationship that way, now what if one of you was to bow with their face to the ground? It actually kind of increases distance between you, right? It's kind of a weird way to show affection. But remember that for the Jewish worshiper, built into the idea of worship was, I want to declare that I am not God. God is other. He's so completely different from me. Reverence, it's a beautiful thing. If you read the English word worship in the New Testament, there's about nine Greek Aramaic words that it's translated from, but there's one that is shows up more than any other. It's a Greek word, proskuneo. Uh, anybody here happen to know what the Greek word proskuneo means? It's a fun word. I want you to keep in mind what the Old Testament word shaka looks like. Proskuneo is really different. So proskuneo is made up of two two words that are kind of slammed together. The first one is pros. We get uh, pro from it. What, what does it mean when you're pro something? You're for it because pros means to move toward, toward or right up against. That's the first part of the word worship most used in the New Testament. Can you see a difference already? That it's not bound to the ground. It's moving toward or even right up against. Cuneo is the next part of the word. Anybody happen to know what cuneo means in Greek? How would you know? Why would you know? Kineo means to kiss. Kineo means to kiss. Like with a lot of uh, definitions of words, you can read down and get shades of meaning out of secondary meanings, right? Um, if, you, if you do that with proskuneo, you're going to find a really interesting description which says to kiss or lick the way a dog would lick its master's hand. It's getting a little weird. That's because kuneo, the Greek word for kiss, comes from kuon, which is the word for dog. How many people have dogs here? All right. Uh, anybody here have a lab? Yeah, okay. Lab owners, if you go away from the house like you are now um, and you go back home to your lab, wh- what's your lab's name? Callie. Callie. So what is Callie going to do when you get home? She gets hyper. Does she like shake a lot? Like she just can't control herself. And then what? Then what does Callie do? She what? What she do? She yips. She makes noise. Does she? Does she run away? What does she do? She runs towards you, right? She crosses. And then what does she do when she gets really close to you? She licks you. Dogs want to do that. Certain breeds want to do it more than others, but that's really instinctive. You would actually have to train that out of a dog in order to get a dog not to do that. That is instinctively, they want to show their affection by getting as close to you, maybe right on you, and they want to lick you, right? 
Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have word pictures that describe worship that are so completely different? It's amazing. It's exciting. I think that probably the easiest way to explain how, why that language might change is probably the most obvious way is the cross. And we have the, the idea that when Jesus' body was broken, that the veil in the temple that separated the most holy place from the whole rest of the earth was torn. And the possibility for deeper intimacy with God was flooding out. Um, it's, it's a good thing to think about those words. Uh, we don't dismiss what the Old Testament taught us about reverence and about God's otherness. We don't dismiss it. We hold it together with our impulse to draw near. And actually throughout the New Testament it says, draw near. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Draw near and receive the help that you need. Uh, it's a beautiful shift in language. But in John chapter 4, something really incredible happens, which is that Jesus speaks openly on the subject of worship. And what I'm going to show you in John chapter 4 are some things that you might miss as an English reader, reading through what might be a familiar uh, passage. So, but we're talking about worship, so I want to I I offer you this little exercise, that as we read John chapter 4 this morning, I want you to remember that we're talking about worship, and I want you to pay really close attention to the things that Jesus says. And the first thing I want you to pay attention to is the very first thing that Jesus says. But before we get there, I want to set the scene for you. John 4 opens up describing that Jesus and his disciples are going on a trip. And they're going to go from Judea to Galilee. Now, if you could see a picture, if you could see a map of where Judea is and where Galilee is, you would notice a big piece of land in the middle called Samaria. Well, look at that. You see that blue there? You see Judea down there near Jerusalem? And you see Galilee up there near Cana and Capernaum? See that blue in the middle, Samaria? Well, at the time that Jesus and his disciples were going to make this trip, Jews and Samaritans were at great odds with each other. Like Augustus Montague Toplady, Jews had choice words for Samaritans. They called them dogs. They called them half-breeds. They had the worst sort of racial slurs for Samaritans. And as a matter of fact, it was so bad that if a Jew had to travel from Judea to Galilee, common practice was to Go around Samaria, not ever go right through Samaria. And yet when John chapter 4 opens up, the journey from Judea to Galilee is mentioned. And it, and it mentions that Jesus decides that they must go through Galilee. Now, if you're an English reader, you look at the map and you go, yeah, that makes, makes a lot of sense to me. To a Jewish person at that time, that would have been ludicrous. It's easy to read over it. But Jesus says we must go through Galilee, or must go through Samaria. I want, and so he does. And I want you to uh, register with me the scene. They're walking. They don't, they don't have horses. They don't have cars. They're walking. And it's a long walk. And in the middle of the day, the Bible says that they're tired. And Jesus sits down to rest. And the disciples go into a nearby town to get some food. 
And it's here that I want to pick up a very incredible and important conversation. So when Jesus sits down at the well, anybody remember what the, who the, what the well is? Oh, well, there we are. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by, thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, so it's about midday. Jacob's well, I want you to keep that in your mind. Jacob's well is where he's sitting. Now, if anybody here has a red-letter edition of the Bible, does anybody here have a red-letter edition? Okay, somebody tell me in John chapter 4, what is the first thing in red that you see? And just say it out loud. Give me a drink. Give me a drink. Jesus sits at a well, and there happens to be another person at the well, and he starts the conversation by saying, give me a drink. Um, You should know that at midday, the person that he's encountering at the well is a woman. We don't know anything about this woman. We know that she's there at midday. Well, in those times, a woman at a well at midday probably meant that she had been ostracized by the rest of the women of her town who would draw water in the morning. So she's there at midday. That's kind of a little bit of a flag. Now, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, even his disciples were a little bit unclear as to who he was. Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Was he merely a rabbi? Or was he indeed the Messiah? Some of his disciples were unclear about this. In any of those roles... As a Jew, as a rabbi, as a teacher, uh, culturally, he should not have ever spoken to a woman alone. He certainly shouldn't have spoken to a Samaritan. But here Jesus is, sitting at this well, starting a conversation. And he starts it by asking for something. Now, for the purposes of this morning, I want you to think about this. When we talk about worship, we probably argue about it so much because we know that the Bible is full of directives to offer God worship. We know that God asks for worship. And so for this morning, I want you to kind of think of this as a lens to understanding worship, because in a minute, Jesus is going to get real explicit. But I want you to think about Jesus asking for a drink, like God asking us for worship. And It should strike you as a little bit strange that the creator of the universe would ask you for something. Does he need anything? Does he have a fragile ego? Does God need to be reminded of how cool he is? How powerful he is? How good he is? Does he he need to hear those things? Did Jesus need a drink? Well... The Bible says they were weary from their journey and they sat down in the middle of the day and he asked for a drink. That seems like a reasonable thing, right? Here's a really cool thing about John chapter 4. Read it as many times as you want. You will never find Jesus taking a drink in John chapter 4. As a matter of fact, after he asks, it's as if he doesn't even care whether he gets a drink. Because the very next thing that he says in red, somebody tell me. Jesus asked this woman for a drink, and she 
kind of objects to the whole thing. She says, what are you doing talking to me? You're, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Jesus quickly explains, if you knew who I was and the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. So what Jesus is effectively saying is the only reason I asked you for a drink was because you didn't know to ask me for a drink. When God asks us for worship, we often involve ourselves in how well we're going to do at answering his request. I want you to remember that in this chapter, in this whole conversation, the very first thing that Jesus asked for, he never gets. And as a matter of fact, as, as the conversation goes a little further, you're going to see that the woman eventually responds directly to him. And even that he doesn't seem to care so much about. Jesus keeps going, stepping step by step, deeper and deeper to a very, very difficult and broken place with this woman. And I find it thrilling and beautiful. Uh, Jesus is about to tell us what worship is and what it isn't. But what I want you to remember is that whatever Jesus has to say about it, he's already demonstrating something about it. He's demonstrating it by starting the conversation, by asking for something, by talking to someone who's an outcast. By the way, I told you the two really prominent words used for worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's one other one that shows up like once or twice. It's a really rare word. It's hardly ever used in the whole Bible. It's the the Greek word enopion. It shows up in Luke chapter 4, and it shows up in what's called the Septuagint, which is sort of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It shows up there once or twice. But this word enopion looks nothing like shaka or proskuneo. Shaka remembering to bow down in reverence, right? And proskuneo, to come near and kiss. Enopion is something completely different. It shows up in Luke when Satan asks Jesus for worship. He doesn't ask him to bow his face to the ground. He doesn't ask him to come near and kiss. He asks him for something very specific. Enopion means to gaze at in awe. Satan says to Jesus, I want you to bow down and, and be impressed with me. Look at me in awe. It's really strange and, and very interesting and something that you should take note of. God doesn't say that to us. It happens to be a thing that occurs when we worship, when we have any realization of who God is and what he's like. These are things that tend to happen. I stand in awe of you. Satan is asking for it. Remember, Satan was Lucifer, right? He was the most beautiful of God's creation. And in Isaiah, we get, we get a glimpse at what his ultimate judgment will be, which is that he'll be looked on as a pathetic thing. And somewhere in the middle there, Satan is begging Jesus to treat him as if he's beautiful again. Really interesting. Enopion doesn't show up ever in the discourse of um, how God wants us to worship him. So if you think about this, if Jesus started a conversation by asking for something 
that he didn't really need, that he never gets, and immediately says, the only reason I asked you is because you didn't know to ask me for this gift that God has for you. Well, is that the Samaritan woman starts talking about worship. If you read John chapter 4, what you'll notice is that when she talks about worship, she never refers to God. She says, our fathers say that you should worship on this mountain. You Jews say that you should worship in Jerusalem. When the Messiah comes, he'll clear it up for us. Her response to Jesus saying, God has a gift for you, is to talk about men, our fathers, you Jews. Uh, What you probably have read over a hundred times and might not notice is that at that point, Jesus changes the conversation. He has already referred to God, if you knew the gift of God, but he changes his language. And he starts calling him father. And this is where John chapter 4 gets exciting to the point of scandal. Because when the woman finally says, I want this living water that you're speaking of, Jesus doesn't say, great, I was waiting for this transaction. You're saved. There. He kind of doesn't seem to be interested in any sort of a transactional kind of thing. A lot of times when we think about worship, we think about it as a monologue, right? We come and we pour out our hearts to God. Monologue is not really a good lens for worship. Duet is maybe a better a better way to think about it. Conversation. Song of Solomon is a great example of a sort of call and response. Our love for God being responded to by his love for us. Um, Psalm 40 is another great way to look at worship. If you grew up in the 80s and you listen to U2, you can quote Psalm 40 from memory probably. Anybody know how Psalm 40 starts? David writes, I waited patiently in the Lord. Somebody heard my cry. I waited patiently, and the Lord heard my cry, which is to say that David cried out, and then he waited. I waited patiently, and the Lord heard my cry. And then what happens in Psalm 40? Some versions of Psalm 40 say this very interesting thing. Not that the Lord heard my cry. He inclined to me. And heard my cry. If you read the NAS, uh, it's kind of a literal translation. You'll find that. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And what I find very interesting is that David said a couple things by saying it quickly. I waited patiently and the Lord heard my cry, which is to say I cried out and then I waited. We don't know how long. But then he says, God inclined to me. How does David know when God inclines? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how an unseen God, how you could register a change in position. But David says he in clinic way and heard my cry. Here's what I think. I think in a poetic way, David was describing something that's hard to describe, which is simply that David 
sensed God's nearness. David sensed God's, there was a change. Somehow he was waiting for something. And then he says, and you inclined to me. He inclined to me and heard my cry. David somehow sensed God's nearness. Friends, I want to submit to you a really important idea. Everything as Christians that we do in the name of worship is predicated on God's actual presence. There is never a time where we do something in God's absence. That's why when we talk about worship, it's best viewed as a conversation because like David, it's not simply crying out and there we've completed the transaction of worship. What would have happened in John chapter 4 if Jesus said, give me a drink, and she gave him a drink? Probably the same thing. He probably said, well, really, I only ask you for a drink because I want to give you something. It seems like when God asks us for worship, it seems like when Jesus asked this woman for a drink, he was really just doing it to open a conversation. Jesus was asking because she didn't know how to ask. She didn't know that he was the person to ask. It's almost like God asks us to just kind of position us. Um, a guy named Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. Anybody ever read Celebration of Discipline? It's a good book. It's an interesting book. There are a group of practices that the church has held for, you know, millennia now, um, which you, you probably know what they are. We, we, what do we do? We gather on Sunday. We study the Bible. We celebrate. We fast, we pray, we serve. There are all these things that, and there are actually words in the New Testament that translate very specific um, to worship as serving. In Celebration and Discipline, um, Richard Foster suggests that all of these things that we do in the name of worship are not the thing itself. They're simply like vehicles. They're like things that help us move towards this really central thing. Um, There are lots of words that we can use to describe or put a better description to worship. Um, I like adoration. I I think that's a good one Um, because adoration can look a lot of different ways. But it sort of starts in the heart, right? Um, Interesting in Psalm chapter 40, when David says, I cried out and the Lord heard my cry, he inclined and heard my cry. It then says that God does a bunch of things. It says that he lifts me up, sets my feet on a rock and makes my footsteps firm. And then David says, what? He put a new song in my mouth. David was a musician and he said, God put a song in his mouth. And what was the song about? It was a song of praise to God. Another strange egotistical thing that God does gives us songs about him. Why would he do that? I I sometimes remember the first Christmas that my parents gave me money to buy them presents. (laughs) It's kind of what it feels like to me. Because that Christmas, when they handed me the 20, I was elated. When they told me I couldn't spend it on myself, I begrudgingly took it. Um, But they taught me that year 
what it feels like to be able to walk around a store with money in your hand and think about someone other than yourself. And in that way, I started to share in their nature, in the giving nature of a parent. When God gives David a song about God, God, you know, as a, as a musician, we kind of know what this is. We kind of know when you're waiting and something changes, the air changes. We call it inspiration. It's like breathing in, right? You're, you're filled. You're filled fresh. It says, he put a new song in my mouth, and it was a song about him. And then he says, and many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. Now, David had already cried out, came something that was actually, It wasn't until God got involved in David's worship that it became something that was actually effective. So I don't know how David cried out. He was a musician. When I cry out, sometimes I sing. But David is suggesting that the real effectual worship to God didn't happen until God filled him with it. That's an exciting idea for me. So whatever we do in the name of worship is predicated on God's nearness, but it's also predicated on him getting involved. Um, This is... Guys, just stuff to chew on. By the way, Richard Foster in uh, Celebration of Discipline also suggests that we have a lot of disciplines because we should change it up. We tend to get good at certain ones, right? If you take any of the classic Christian disciplines and look for them in Scripture, what you'll eventually find is that God, at one time or another, will tell his people that they got it gravely wrong. Fasting, read, read Isaiah 58. It's a great passage. And how polluted fasting had gotten for the nation of Israel. Even the worship that David offered, this skillful playing, the improvisation, go, go to Amos and you'll find where God says, I hate it when you guys do that. You're very self-involved when you're worshiping in that way. Jesus castigated the Pharisees for public prayer, right? They were so eloquent and they were so good at praying. All of these practices, whatever we, you know, whatever we get good at in the name of worship can often become the very thing that, that, you know, has gotten polluted. And so God gives us all these ways to worship so that we can change it up. So I guess uh, a place that I kind of want to want to leave you thinking about is that or at least I find helpful to think about it this way is that worship in though it can take many forms is is much like it's much like a kiss it's much like showing adoration um, it's very much like a meal As much as we argue over what worship should and shouldn't be, when we get sideways with each other, when, when we get sideways with people that we've committed to walk a road with, one of the easiest ways to start to repair a relationship is just open up your heart, open up your home, right? Get a bottle of wine if that's what you're into. Make a meal. Sit down. Face each other. You know... Jesus, one of his most strident corrections to the New Testament church shows up in Revelation. 
chapter 3. He says to the church in Laodicea, you probably can quote it, some of you. He says, you're lukewarm. What does he want to do? He says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. And immediately follows with a verse that's often misconstrued as about evangelism, which is Jesus saying, behold, I what? I stand at the door and knock. How many altar calls have started with that? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus was talking to his church. And he was saying, you've drifted away from me. You've lost that fire and spontaneity of love. And he says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Those are strong words. But immediately says, but if you hear my voice, open the door and I'll come in and I'll what? I'll have a meal with you. I'll sup with you. I'll have a meal with you. What we find in Scripture is when God's people get sideways with the Lord himself, he's always driving at intimacy. He's always driving at relationship. It's what we learn with each other, right, when we get sideways. There are ways that we can mend. And so what I want to offer to you is this, that worship, one really good way to think about it is like it's a meal. It's like it's a good meal with a dear friend. How often do you eat? How often do you eat? Every day? Once a day? All day. day. You just kind of start grazing. You just wake up and you... Think about it. How often do you eat? What if you interrupted that for one day, just one day? How would you feel? You would feel like you were missing meals, right? A great way to think about worship is that it simply is a meal. We do it often. We do it with care. We do it with intimacy. We should do it with each other. We should do it in the secret place. It's a meal. It's something we do for sustenance because there are things that you need that you don't know how to ask for, that you don't even know to ask for. When God calls us constantly to worship, often it is because we have no way of understanding how to ask him for the things that we need. But if we create space and we do things like singing or praying or studying or serving, and we do those things sort of prayerfully, we can enter into that dialogue that is worship. Because what God teaches us about worship is that it's very, very little about what we're doing, very, very much about what he wants to do with us. So really the best way to think about worship is that we come to the table and be ready to wait and listen. Certainly cry out, unburden yourself. But that is not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is that God is right in the center of it. In a moment, uh, we're going to take communion. Actually, I want to ask James and Heather to come back and and play while we take communion. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this the family meal of the church. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up and just come up or as you're ready. Um, there's bread and there's wine. We take it here by dipping one 
What I want you to do today is as you take communion, I want you to think about your personal practice of worship. You know, the things that we do on Sundays are a shorthand for the way we live our lives. We pray with each other because we pray a lot. We understand that we have to pray constantly without ceasing. We sing in psalms and hymns. and The Lord taught us to make music in our hearts and to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, by the way, in the New Testament, Ode Pneumaticos, a song breathed in, just like David's new song in the Old Testament. And we take these tokens for more than just one reason. Yes, as a remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross, but also as a reminder that we're one body. Also as a reminder that we need food for life. And Jesus has called us to kind of together share meals. So this being um, kind of a shorthand, I want you to think about maybe this week, what does it mean to bring these practices more into your daily life? All the different ways that we can worship. How can you build them into more constant practice? Let's pray and, um, and talk to the Father. Lord, we know that you're near. And we know, Lord, that you have things for us that we don't quite know how to ask for. Lord, as each of us answer the knock at the door, Lord, and begin to walk deeper with you, uh, begin to sit often and sup with you. Teach us how to extend that open-heartedness to each other, Lord. We've heard that you're good, Lord. Teach us to truly taste and see often, as often as we eat, Lord. To taste and see that indeed you are good. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us at www.mosaiceasley.org.